Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the No Film School Podcast for the week after Thanksgiving, the week of December 2nd, 2022. I'm Charles Hain. I'm a filmmaker. I'm the host of this podcast. I'm here with Editor-in-Chief of No Film School, George Edelman. Hello. Filmmaker and elegant sweater wearer, Gigi Hawkins. Hello. Existential angst, Todd Blankenship. I love that that's become my my calling card for the, for the podcast. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> <laughs> Dude, I love all your plants. Your plants are really making my day. Yeah, I've been trying to trying to make it lively in here. I'm, I'm thinking I should move my cactus behind me. And then this week on the No Film School podcast, first up, we are talking about Thanksgiving weekend. Had terrible Thanksgiving box office. We try not to talk too much box office here, but there's some interesting things here to talk about. Uh, we're going to be talking about improv in cinema and lessons that we have learned. And then we're going to be wrapping it all up talking about Nerf and how it, not honestly, the it's the first AI yeah. Nerf for nothing. Not the toy. I mean it. <laughs> <laughs> it is a toy. Nerf, the first AI tool I saw where I was like, oh, you could use this shit now. Like, mostly you're watching AI shit and you're like, oh, that'll change things in two years. And I watched this and I was like, oh, like, people could use this today. So that is this week on the No Film School podcast. So, our first topic historically bad Thanksgiving box office. So, the thing we always gotta say is box office is irrelevant and to like the quality of a movie and i saw a movie with my daughter and my brother-in-law and cousin nephews over the weekend we saw lyle lyle crocodile mm. oh which has been out cinema saver it's, we saw it at a second run movie theater a cinema saver in upstate new york and uh it was all kids and here's the thing it, the movie has some structural problems that, that <laughs> really speak to an edit like it's one of those movies you're watching and you're like ooh, this is like you were trying to fix some stuff in the edit and, and it didn't quite work. And so some character motivations don't make sense, but Javier Bardem is working so hard to save the movie that you forgive it everything because he puts so much heart and soul into Lyle, Lyle crocodile that I you're like, that. like, honestly, I kind of think he deserves a supporting actor nomination for everything <laughs> he tried to do in Lyle. Lyle. Yeah. It's, it's at, like Javier Bardem is a movie star guys. Yeah. And he really, really brings it to Lyle. Lyle. Um, I saw everyone it. else is fine. There's story problems. Yeah, I, I just want to talk about Lyle Lyle Crocodile. I had the directors <laughs> on the podcast actually, so you can you you all can go listen to that if you're curious to know a little bit about it. Because part of a, I'm a fan of the book, uh, and my kids <laughs> read the kids of the book. I found they offered us to to talk me to talk to the directors to go to an early screening, which was fun because I got to take the kids to the lot, Whoa. and what we saw was an early cut without finished VFX, oh. which was really fascinating to me, but also I think to them. Yeah. That's and it cool. was fun to talk to my kids and and like, you know, here we are in this filmmaking podcast, but talk about like why sometimes Lyle was all gray or sometimes Lyle <laughs> was in a cage that was like <laughs> ping pong balls on top and it was a man inside and 
Honestly, that I sounds think just, disturbing for children, but I'm glad. I mean, it, it was. They were kind of confused, but fascinated by it. And we talked a lot about like, wow, every movie you see, there are so many elements that are completely like fabricated. And it's this dance between things that are finished and aren't and when. And mm-hmm. I agree with your notes, Charles. And I actually think like it, one of the things that I, because as much as I know about making movies and as much as everybody here knows and everybody listening knows what goes into the sausage, et cetera. There's still something that happens when we watch it all finished that we look at it and we don't take into account part of the reason there are flaws. And when you're watching something that's unfinished, you're like, yeah, they have a timetable they're on and certain elements don't look right and they can't gauge everything yet and they can't make the best decisions all the time because there's just so much going on. It's so mm-hmm. hard. And it's just a reminder, you know, that like that it's, it, that it's a fascinatingly complicated process. Yeah. Anyway, Lila Crocodile somehow. That, that's super cool. You got to, you got to see that. But I mean, I, I'm just going to take this a step further and say that the fundamental problem with Lila, Lila Crocodile is the, is the problem of a passive protagonist. Like it's a screenwriting mm. 101 problem. Lyle is a fundamentally passive character to which events happen. So, like, if you compare it to something like Paddington, which if you haven't watched the Paddington movies, the Paddington movies are fantastic. And Paddington is an actor protagonist who is trying to accomplish things. He has goals that we can identify with. And they're way more dynamic movies. And he has a personality. Lyle, mm-hmm. I enjoy the books quite a bit, but Lyle is not a motivated character. My, my, like, Lyle is, like, so, and they're doing the same thing they do in 8 Mile, which I hated, where, like, <laughs> Lyle can sing, but, like, he keeps chickening out about singing and like it was the whole problem with eight mile it's like i know eminem can fucking rap so you're gonna build this whole movie about how he's afraid to rap and i have to keep watching the scene over and over where he's about to rap and he doesn't and i'm like why are you teasing me this is em and fucking m just let him motherfucking rap i think they tried to make the kid the protagonist and they tried to make lyle an agent of change for the people around him but they tried to pack too much in the stew you know it was just one of those things where there's like a lot of confused elements, like kind of packed in and there. And a magic Negro. And a magic Negro. They had a magic Negro. A what? They did it in 2022. So there's a concept in screenwriting uh, popularized by an article by Spike uh, Lee called the magic Negro, which is where a white protagonist has a black character in their life that magically solves all of your problems for you and is full of wisdom, best epitomized by the Will Smith character in Legend of Bagger Vance. But it, it was also sort of a criticism a lot of people leveled at queen's gambit you can even see when watching queen's gambit that they'd gotten the note and they did a pickup to address it where the Mm -hmm. white lead leans to her magic negro and is like you're not saving me are you and the other character says no i'm not saving you we're saving each other and i'm like that was pickups to address someone calling this a magic negro in the notes and lyle lyle crocodile has like the the white kid lead character he has like a, a sassy black friend who's very popular on tiktok at school who like saves him from everything and is there to rescue him at the end with her snake and i'm like what are you doing? It's oh, 2022. No. Uh, but man, Javier Bardem works so hard. He works so hard. <laughs> this is not what we're supposed to be talking about today. <laughs> we really, you know what talking about? Guys the, really came out back. the gate I, with the Lyle Lyle crocodile deep dive. <laughs> <laughs> I, I having not read the books or seen the movie, but I've seen a lot of promotion for it. But I think I can bring it back to uh, the sort of box office uh, numbers because we were talking about <laughs> Strange World uh, just before starting the podcast and I saw somebody tweet who who was like I am an animation person I haven't seen a single piece of promotion for this like what's the deal I live in LA so there is a bubble of promotion that's targeted to the people who make the movies 
So I have seen a lot of Strange World Me content. Yeah. Though I couldn't tell you what it's about because it's a faceless... I mean, actually, blob. maybe this is part of the strategy. It's a it's a faceless blob creature sitting in a blue background. And I'm like, is this sci-fi or are we exploring inside of somebody's body again? Like, what <laughs> is this? I don't know. So we we kind of were circling around this idea of like, well, if something's not working and the studio's already put money in it, but they're like, we're going to sort of take a step back on the promotion and that can impact box office numbers. Yeah, and, What's interesting yeah. to me is, as a New Yorker, I haven't seen any promotion. But, of course, within L.A., they have to promote it within L.A. so that people who worked on it in L.A. don't realize that they're dumping it. Interesting. Did anyone here see I it? Saw, I saw a trailer for No, I did not see it. But I saw a trailer for it. And, and it was like one of the weirdest, as, as someone who has spent part of his career making trailers, it was one of the weirdest trailers I've ever seen. It's like. You like it, the 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 theater was almost like what the heck was that like it, it just almost doesn't feel like and I don't know the uh-huh. the art direction style is kind of like dated looking and you know it's just mm-hmm. kind of like uh, you know when it's one of those trailers you know sometimes you see it and you're just like oh that's gonna be one of those you know and, and then it kind of was is it is there like an aspect of it though that it's been like review bombed because of some of the content of the film like I think I think there's some right wingy stuff going on with it too like I think that's an aspect. Uh, it does. I'm going to Google it real quick. It does have the, I want to call it Stranger Things, Strange Worlds. <laughs> uh, it has one of the first gay character, gay relationships yeah. in an animated Disney film. Yeah, I think, that, that. I think that was like uh-huh. part of it. Like, I think like the, a, a, a large portion of people were just like, I'm not going to support that. Uh, mm. I think that sort of a thing happened. But I think it also just happens to be kind of a, a pretty can- mid movie. I haven't thought much about the sex life of most of the Disney characters when I watch their films. <laughs> it's not like a big prominent thing where I'm thinking about no, like you could just watch the movie and like not really think about it. it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's like it's not an important part of that experience for me. Biracial, openly gay character, and I think that even though I think that even though it's not something we think about when we think about these characters and then sometimes later we're like, Hey, Bert and Ernie, aren't they probably? And everyone's oh, yeah. like, yeah, right. But, but it's not explicit. And do, I do think that there is something, if it is explicit in the story, which this is that it definitely bugs certain people. And then there is like, there probably was some review bombing or something. I don't think that explains that the total situation though, because the lack of marketing, the strange marketing, the marketing didn't include anything about that because I did see a trailer. I'm trying to figure out what I what I saw where I, I mean, saw the tra- trailer. They're going to lose a hundred million dollars on it at least uh, is what they're projected. Okay. So I mean, which as we've discussed when we talked about the Batgirl thing, yeah, was, sometimes that was what I was going to ask like, is like, is this a Batgirl situation? Like, but they just went ahead and put it out. Like, are they just kind of like taking they're taking the loss? Taking the loss. Yeah. I don't, I, I'm surprised they did a theater run if they could have just released it on streaming, you know? Yeah, because on like Disney Plus, that's there's been a lot of that tier of movie on there. Like, don't get me started on Disenchanted. But yeah, that <laughs> that would have been fine on Disney Plus, I think. But I don't know. I don't know. The interesting thing is that they did the theatrical at all. Now, theatricals don't cost that much anymore. It's not like they have to make mm-hmm. prints because they can do DCPs. But you're right, they've got Disney Plus. They could just dump it on Disney Plus. And it's not like, like, obviously, with big stars in the Black Widow movie, they were contractually obligated and got sued over not doing the theatrical. But, like, is anybody doing a voice in animation and making sure it's contractually obligated that you get a theatrical? Right. Is this a big 
animation director who's contractually obligated to do the theatrical. The bigger issue in general is this idea that Thanksgiving used to be a big weekend for movies and was always traditionally a big weekend for movies in my life. And people are sort of walking away from this one and being like, okay, I think we're in the process of learning what the post-pandemic viewing habit experience is going to be like in that, you know, movies are back as a summer experience, but have we now figured out how we can manage to be in a house with our relatives for the holidays <laughs> without needing to go to a movie theater? Um, I, did we learn I that have, from the pandemic? Also, they I have didn't a couple put Glass Onion on enough screens. I tried to see Glass Onion, right. and I couldn't. So, so there's a couple weird things. Like we 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 are just sitting here reading the tea leaves, all of us trying to figure out like why do they do this? Why didn't they do that? You know, and I think it's valuable for our filmmaking community to think about these things or question them or or try to learn from them because yeah. So Glass Onion would have was crushing it in the box office, right? People want to see it. People went to see it and Netflix didn't have it in very many screens and very many theaters and was like, that's not really our business model. Meanwhile, Fablements was like a disaster, right? In its limit, in its opening in terms of box office and the overall box office for the weekend was like, I think the lowest since like 1994 when of course tickets cost a fraction of what they cost. So ridiculous. Um, but I want to point out that like it's the glass onion thing is a reminder that like just because certain kinds of movies didn't perform well in this context, like there were a couple horror movies this fall that weren't very expensive that made tons of money in theatrical. Barbarian. So, Have we talked about Barbarian? Just like Well, that's one. I wasn't even thinking about that. But there was also the one with the clown that everybody was talking about. It's like oh, creepy clown. Right. It did really well. It was like yeah. right, the grossest thing ever, apparently. Ugh. And then there was also Smile. Um Smile. Yeah, smile. And so there is a absolute theatrical recipe for success. Mm-hmm. And and it may not be movies like some of the ones that came out this Thanksgiving, but like the the thing of like adjusting and learning and identifying, and it's super important for creative people and aspiring filmmakers to understand these things because you're going to go into all these meetings and conversations with people who are thinking about and their livelihoods and their jobs depend entirely on this stuff. Like what happened? What, what did well? What didn't? And why? And what do we want to hear you? Don't go pitching Strange Worlds too <laughs> or something like it. You know what I mean? But like that, that's like the most like high level way of looking at it. But I do think it's interesting to note that like, so some movies didn't do well. Some movies did like extremely well. Like saying box office was down is like saying like that, that's such a, it's a, it's such a big broad strokes conclusion to draw when we can look at little things like glass onion and be like, Hey, people love that. Like, Mm -hmm. and really wanted to see it and couldn't. Yeah, I mean, I wonder if that's kind of part of the uh, the strategy with Glass Onion, though, is like, you know, give it a low bar to be, you know, meeting or whatever. And had they put it in more theaters, maybe it wouldn't have performed. But like, I, I don't know. I think a big part of it for me, in my opinion, is is the the marketing side of things is just kind of weird right now. Like the Fableman's marketing, like I know about it because I'm, you know, I'm into film, but it's like. It, I didn't really see any ads really for it or anything. It's a Spielberg. It's oh, a Spielberg I saw movie. So many, like you know, it, yeah. I, you know, I'm in, I'm in like the South, so it, it's we. I, I'm sure y'all probably see more stuff than that about movies than I do, like out when I'm out and about or whatever. 
There is a big giant billboard for Lyle Lyle Crocodile uh, right off 35 <laughs> over here, though. I will say that. We love it. We love it. <laughs> I love the ads for Lyle Lyle Crocodile. He's in the bathroom. Yeah, that's the yeah. one. Great ad I drive campaign. by him every day. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> love it. But yeah, it's just weird because, you know, maybe Glass Onion has more visibility because people are kind of more tied into what streaming services are doing. And, and you know, I, I don't know, like, you always see their trailers on YouTube way more often. Like all the Netflix trailers pop up way more often on YouTube. And like, so I, I don't know. It's, you know, I don't, I'm not a marketing genius or anything, but I just, I feel like something weird is going on with film marketing as well. Like on top of all the weird box office stuff. Can I ask everybody a question? I know Charles already gave an answer. So sorry, Charles. But for Gigi and Todd, did you guys see a movie in the theater over Thanksgiving? No. I tried to. I tried to see the Fableman in Santa Rosa, California, which is where my family lives now. And uh, and it, they the last showing is at 7 p.m. And it was 7.30 p.m. So we're spoiled here with our AMC Burbank in Glendale where we can just like pop in and easily go see something. So that was a bit of a like a sad attempt of uh, trying to see something. And we ended up watching movies at home with like, 13 kids under the age of 10. <laughs> really intense. Sounds fun. I, I can speak a little bit to the marketing after, Todd, you give your answer based on uh, my yeah, old days. My answer is pretty simple. I didn't. I, I mean, <laughs> the Thanksgiving time is like, you know, I'm lucky to like have time to drink water. <laughs> it's yeah. just chaos. It's pure chaos. Uh, but we did have time sure. to watch Disenchanted on Disney Plus about seven times. <laughs> oh, so, well, so I hear that enchanted fans so, are not excited about disenchanted. We're just gonna we're gonna like dissect all of the like really <laughs> kids, <laughs> broad kids like, movies, is that what this the G movies. Is, here's, here's my review. That is the no film school audience. Yeah. <laughs> disenchanted and Lyle Lyle. Crime. No, I I enjoyed <laughs> D- Enchanted. I think that's a cute film and 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 one that I've Enchanted works. Yeah, I've watched it quite a few yeah. times with my daughter. Yeah, Disenchanted not so much, but. I don't have any, you know, like deeper analysis that I care at this point in time to go into. <laughs> <laughs> so you guys saw st- stuff you streamed. Yeah, both yeah of we streamed you, yeah. over the break. Which yeah. like like when I say that I'm like, dang it. Like I'm I did I'm part of the the problem. Like I'm a film person. I didn't go see a movie. That's why the box office is bad. But also I used to work at a movie theater for a number of years and Thanksgiving was like the worst day of my life. Every single year when I worked there. Put in your time. Yeah, so I kind of, I, yeah, I put in my time. I did. I saw Star Wars, which was in the what? theater at the Arrow. And I've seen it like a bajillion times, but I'll see that movie <laughs> in the Star theater Wars. anytime it's there. I'm over here like, they put out one that I didn't even know about. Me too. I was like, this is out of control. Star Wars, 1977, directed by George Lucas. <laughs> um, I want to just circle back quickly to what Todd was saying about the the marketing for theaters and entertainment in general. So this I'm pretty sure this is somewhat up to date, but it's been a minute since I worked in advertising. But I worked with HBO and Showtime and Sundance Now and and uh, what's the horror? There's like a horror streaming Shutter. Shutter. Like the the biggest question, you know, was whether we converted somebody to actually viewing. And there's only so many ways that you can measure that, especially if you're not tracking and view, then viewing online. And now that there's even more regulation, I bet it's even tougher to track when somebody has actually converted into buying a, a ticket. But if you have like 
it, uh, an AMC app, I'm sure there's a way that they can track if you saw an AMC ad or an ad for hmm. Lyle Lyle Crocodile and then uh, converted into actually buying a ticket. Then, there, of course, there's something called out of home. So these are the billboards that we're seeing. And, and if there are targeted audiences, something like Lyle Lyle Crocodile, I'm sure, appeals to people all over the United States. So I can see them placing them everywhere. But things like, again, Strange World, I think are specifically, there's a bit of budget. And I remember hearing this from some of my clients. They'd be like, we have to put place a billboard right here because the executive producer drives down this street and they are going to see it. And that'll make that person happy. Um, So there's an element of that as well. But there's a big question mark when it comes to marketing. And especially in this day and age, a lot of there was a trend of like moving towards creating content surrounding a show. I remember that. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah. Interesting. So the big there's the big gray area of like, I don't know if this is working or that famous quote of like half my marketing budget is a waste. I just don't know which half. Gotcha. Interesting. Mm. Man, it's so crazy just when you hear that stuff and you think about how there are decisions made that are like, we're just going to put it on the street because we know the producer drives by that. It's like the money is spent in such crazy, foolish ways that it's just mind boggling. Yeah. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes, the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. And with that, let's talk about improv cinema. Gigi, you are working on projects coming up with some improv elements? Yeah. So I've been very inspired by Triangle of Sadness in how the performances are very much unravel unfolding in a very simple setup uh, with the camera. And I've, you know, I have a bit of an improv background. I came up through UCB. And then when I started as a filmmaker, I would bring in my friends who were funny. And I found a lot of the time, like the improv would go way off the rails and wouldn't work in the edit and we ended up cutting it. And now I think I have a bit of an equilibrium where I'm like, I know what I need. And I also know the talent that I can rely on to stay within certain parameters. Um, and, and through that, I found some really like magical, hilarious moments. And, I, and a lot of like commercials these days hire improvisers who just kind of like rattle off one-liners. An actor I work with, Mark Sipka, he's in like a national insurance commercial as a barista. And he just like improvised his whole line and it, it's hilarious. So I'm, I'm in the process early days, writing a short inspired by sort of like the feeling of Triangle of Sadness, uh, which is, you know, dark, dark comedy, observational comedy. And I'm like, I want to use improv and maybe it's in the pre-production process as I'm writing it, but I'm just sort of, it's such a thing that we hear a lot about, or we see something like a Linklater film and we're like, we know improv was part of that process. And then we see some mumblecore where we're like, Duplass is just run in their mouths and it's great. And sometimes it's not. Um, So I'm curious to hear everyone's experience about, you know, keeping things fresh, getting what you need 
and then, or just, you know, leaning full improv with your projects? I think it's a great topic. I have a lot to say though. So maybe you can come back to me or I, I guess I'll just like, so I also, I didn't, I wasn't part of UCB or anything, but I did a lot of improv. I did a lot of theater. I did a lot of comedy. I was very much in the comedy world and comedy was what I did and people I knew. And there's so much about like what works in an improv or stage context or what works on a set, what's funny and what plays is not often or not necessarily what works in a cut, I think. Mm -hmm. So you have to always have this idea, especially I think when you work with great comedic talent, that they're going to throw all this stuff out there and you should, my feeling is you should always let them and then you have to just make your picks and make your decisions because like I had on one movie, I did a guy who was just hilarious, but he was like, once he saw the movie, he was like, Oh, I had no idea like what you guys had in mind or what you were going to do. And I was totally off base with like 90% of what I was doing. Mm -hmm. It was like, yeah, that's fine. I mean, you did your thing and we found what worked and we kept what we thought was great. But like, I just think that 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 there can be a value to I think Paul Feig said this when I talked to him about also his working with comedic talent and improv and like the idea and it goes back to vaudevillians doing bits around the country on the road and then when they did their movies like so like the Abbott and Costellos and Marx Brothers and stuff they would be like work it work it work it in front of an audience mm-hmm. find out where the laughs are Mm-hmm. Then when it's time to make a movie, it's like locked in. Like they knew it. Like the, the improv process was a process of development and discovery. And then the shooting part was just like, uh, it's rote now. Like we know what works. We've tested it. But then there's the famous story of like Robin Williams showing up to do the genie and just giving them endless material. Uh-huh. And, and so much of it is like genius. And there's, there's the, the famed like Robin Williams cuts they joke about where they're like, there's so much we couldn't use that is Aww. just hilarious and amazing that was just not, could not make it in. So I, I feel like so many thoughts, so many things, but the biggest thing is I think improv is such a valuable skill set because understanding how to, there's a, the famous improv thing is yes and instead of no but. Understanding the principles of yes and will make you a better collaborator and creator than I think anything else. Like it's it's saying no is important and happens and necessary, but the basic fundamental thing of like building, it, it gives people like, if you're talking to an actor and they're an improv actor and they do something and it's awful and you hate it and it's not going to work, you got to like, yes, and it and like get another take and like let them, Mm -hmm. because if you shut people down, oftentimes they, they like, they break, they close off and they don't feel inspired and they don't feel happy and they don't. So I think there's so much to get out of it as a discipline, as far as like working with other artists. But I don't know if you, I think you could, as far as how you utilize it on set, I don't know. That's tricky. I've definitely made the mistake where the energy in in the room as I'm shooting, you know, we're all laughing. We're trying not to laugh so we don't mess up the sound. And then 
you know, and we're like, keep going, keep going. And then it's just like, this doesn't translate at all. Right. Sometimes it seems so (laughs) funny and you're like, this is genius. And then you're like, oh my God, it doesn't work at all. Yeah. And a cut, I mean, that's a cut that didn't seem funny becomes hilarious. There's so many reasons editors are banned from set, but one of them is that one of them is an editor should, because like once you've seen it be funny, you're going to try and make it funny again. And sometimes Mm -hmm. it's just not fucking funny. And like the, (laughs) the, the, like the concept of what is cinematically funny and what is improvisationally funny is like a huge thing for me. The, the real thing with improv goes, everything goes back to prep, like for everything. Cinematography happens in pre-production writing obviously happens in pre-production, but improv for me is built best in pre-production. So when I was an undergrad, I uh, was a part of an improv troupe. We were unbearable. We people would be like, "Oh, you do improv comedy?" We'd be like, "No, we we do long form improv, but it's not always comedic." Like we were oh, those God. miserable oh, bastards. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm ashamed. I'm properly embarrassed. Um, I'm not telling that story with pride. Um, and uh, we, but we did. Uh, my my like undergrad thesis was a feature length project on 16 millimeter because I was like I was going to shoot fucking film. God damn it! Yes. Even though like. Looking back, I'm like, why was that not on video? I was it like early film. mumblecore, basically, that you it were was, doing? It was very early. Like, yeah, if it had gotten yeah. into festivals, it would have been like, it'd be the first mumblecore. It was a mumblecore in the year 2016, yeah. straight through <laughs> 16, not even super. But we did six weeks of rehearsal. And so for six hours mm-hmm. a week, we did two hours of rehearsal in which like we were talking about the characters for an hour, like not improvising, like talking about the characters. Here's what the characters are. Here's what we're thinking. And then we would improvise for an hour. And then eventually, as it started going on, we started like taking the improv out to campus. So like they would be in character as the three characters. And we would like, I remember once we ran into one of my professors and they didn't break character, these three actors. And like, <laughs> God fucking bless them. But it was embarrassing. No. Um, and but the thing is, is when we got to set, they were improvising within characters that they already had a handle of what the character mm-hmm. was. And the big problem with me is like when I like the frustrating thing about so much of professional work is you're casting people a week before production starts. Right. And like, that's just the way indies work. And so you're casting this person. And even though they're an amazing improviser, they're showing up on set. They barely know the character. They're depending upon the lines. And so like they start improvising and they, they exactly what George said. They're like, oh, but what if this guy was actually sort of like this? And you're like, but actually no, but if he's like that, then this other part in a scene you're not even in doesn't make any sense. And like it, so for me, the best improv experiences I've had are when I'm actually able I had a project in 2018 where we cast about six months out and we just met regularly to do improv mm-hmm. sessions with the actors. And then when we got to set, we had that foundation. Yeah. And so that for me is, is how you create, you know, the Mike Lee thing. I didn't even know Mike Lee did this until later, but like the Mike Lee model of like, I'm just going to cast a bunch of actors. We're going to spend months improvising to figure it out together. And then we're going to shoot it. I think it's like very productive. I, I think one thing that happens a lot is, you know, there are people who are great improvisers and then they show up on set and they can improvise well, but if you haven't given them all that character context. And so the trick is, is if you're like, okay, I am bringing in a day player. This person's coming in for a one day scene in this feature or whatever, like, like being like, okay, well, I'm going to give up an hour of shoot to just sit and talk to them about the character for an hour while people light so that when they okay. start improvising, they at least have something that, to go on. And that's the bigger trick because the, the problem of improvising, I love improvisers. They're wonderful. But like they need a lot of context to know what else is going on in the movie. But, you know, I mean, there's improv in Wall Street and it's an amazing, like that's a very structured movie with beats. 
but there's scenes Raging that are Bull, improvised. Famously, some incredible, yeah. but you know those guys were working it hard for months and months and months, and yeah. there was no like you, it was you, all yeah. like soaked into them, the characters mm-hmm. and the yeah. situations, etc. Yeah, it's it, like I th- kind of think of about on on Curb, Curb Your Enthusiasm. There's like there's certain there's certain guests guest actors on that show that you can tell they're very uncomfortable. Like there's there's certain times oh, where you're like thousand you're percent. like they are probably percent. like they have sweat in their armpits and they are dying inside and you oh, can just feel it on screen. I, honestly, I'm so glad I'm sorry to cut you <laughs> off. I'm so glad you brought it up because it's actually some of my favorite stuff in the show cuz I'm just a weirdo. <laughs> yeah. But I remember there are a couple times when there's somebody who's so out of their element and it becomes a hilarious it makes it on a side yeah. note because you're just like, oh my God, this guy is dying. Well, and I think that's like part of the the essence of uh, Curb Your Enthusiasm. But I think that's kind of part of the essence of that show where it's like, it's sort of part of the tone because, you know, they, they sort of react to Larry in this uncomfortable way or whatever. But yes. yeah, I, for me with improv stuff, um, I, I mean, I think everything Charles said is almost exactly how I feel about it. You have to like pr- prepare the ethos of the character in the world. And if you don't do that, then, then there's going to be a lot of weird continuity stuff. And like one thing that I always, um, like, have you ever like met a, a, a different friend group and that friend group's comedy is not really your comedy at all. <laughs> like you're like, and everyone loves each other and they think they're hilarious mm-hmm. and they talk and they joke and like. Yeah, like you're just like none of that is funny to me. I don't like these people. I don't want to hang out with them anymore. So, I feel like that's all of my friends from college. I love them, <laughs> well, no, but I'm like, I mean, that's what happened. Like you kind of grow up, and you're like, okay, so these people clearly didn't change, and they still think they're funny, but they're not anymore. This used to be cute. It's not anymore. Um, like I think you have to really watch out for that. Like, and and, and I, th- someone touched on it earlier, but like the the life of a joke from onset to editing is such a intriguing thing to me because it's so bizarre how something when you're there just can feel like the funniest thing in the world. And then when you've seen it literally the second time, like, or the third time, you're like, oh, this isn't that funny, you know? And, and it's just weird how that can feel different. And I think with improv that you just run such a risk of that happening, but it's like, that's why like for me, if it's, if it's up to me, you know, I've, I've always just sort of just because I, I know he did it and I heard him say it one time or whatever, but the Adam McKay thing where you shoot the written one and then you just do a wild take of a bunch of whatever lines like I think that works, you know, so you have the safety. But yeah, I mean, I don't have a ton of experience with improv, honestly, like I've done a few like little commercially things where some aspects of it were, were but and, and you know, you, you can really get that lightning in a bottle type moment, but it's, you know. I I feel like it's kind of risky at times, but um, yeah. So much. So my experience of actual like that I've done, it's usually not better than the written stuff because the written stuff got a lot of extra time and attention and it takes a lot to make a joke work. Mm -hmm. Like it's takes like a lot of work. And so I think that improv can be amazing, but it's like Charles made a great point about the, I think it's good to foster its growth, to yes and it, to give it room, just like the Adam McKay method, like get the scripted version, let them do whatever they want to do and discover something. But I also think about the perfect example of what Charles is talking about to me is Ghostbusters, which is one of the best movies ever made. Sorry, just is. Um, 1984. (laughs) And Bill Murray was 
I mean, I remember watching the commentary, like I soaked up as much as I could the extra features of that movie. Uh-huh. But like, they just talked about Ramis and Acre just talking about how like ridiculously, like he didn't say a single word they wrote basically. Like he just came in and did whatever the hell he wanted. And it's all hilarious. But I feel like that it works because he is him. They cast mm-hmm. him. He is him. And he's in a box they created that's perfect for him to play in. And even if they didn't do six months of prep altogether, like they were like, we know Bill Murray. Yeah. Bill Murray is, Peter Venkman is Bill Murray. There's no difference. And it's just going to be, we're creating the safe space. We're going to be a straight man and create a box for him. And he's going to just do his thing. And it, and it works. But like that, if you had, I think if you had like six actors who showed up and were all Bill Murraying, it would yeah. be hell. Like, not just, I do not, not want just to watch on that set, movie. but just like the movie would be hell. Like, so you had, it, they, they really structured that maybe by accident, maybe partly on purpose, but it just works. And it's a good, it's a testament to what Charles is saying is like, if it's not in prep, then it has to be in some structure you create mm-hmm. that allows like a flower to grow amongst the weeds or what, or a weed to grow amongst whatever, like something wild happens in, in that in gay, in structured environment. Tina Fey has got this great point in bossy pants where she talks about like building a team of people. And mm-hmm. she's like, when you're building a team of comedy people, it can't all be like crazy Chicago improvisers. Cause then every scene, it's just going to be two people yelling at each other. Smell my feet. <laughs> yeah. and, but it also can't be all Ivy league nerds. Cause then every scene just evolves into like phenomenological representations of capitalism. And you're like, we yeah. you sort of need like the weird nerds and the Chicago improviser and you need people who do the lines and the people who are wild. And like, you've got to have that like collaboration together or you're stuck. And like the thing that makes Ghostbusters work is that like, Literally, first off, like he's a huge nerd about ghosts, and I guarantee you, he actually like every scripted line about <laughs> yes. the, like he like Harold Ramis, and like got all of the dialogue exactly right to get all the plot points through. And I bet if you look back for like, all right, how much of the plot rests on Peter Venkman's lines or actions? Right, it exactly. Is very, very little. None. It is, he's it's just... charisma, and then the rest of them do the plot, and like that is a structure that they knew him. They've been working mm-hmm. with him for a decade and all sorts of other stuff. And they were able to be like, okay, you can be it, whatever, you know, weird, sexual, harassy, charming to uh, uh, <laughs> you want to be. And we will make sure that the plot continues with the weird anti-EPA thing that is the underlying right. plot like, it's, of it's just, Ghostbusters. They have, right. I, I think of like, there are some, there are also just some actors who are, any word that comes out of their mouth is yeah. funny. Like I think of Zach Cherry, yeah, yeah. who's on, um, you know, the one the with the S Severance. Six, severance. Yeah. I was like, it's not Succession. Um, hilarious improviser. He's the guy who told Spider Man to do a backflip or something, right? That guy. Yeah. Yes, he he is on Succession too. Like he has a bit part there. He's somebody who just shows up. And when you, I see him on stage, it feels similar. Like he, every like he is a heightened version of himself. Another improviser that comes to mind is Jeff Hiller, who's on Somebody Somewhere. And he is like a very sweet, kind improviser. Uh, But Jeff Hiller, who also has been featured multiple times on um, 30 Rock, you know, as the flight attendant or Mm -hmm. the hotel clerk, um, you know, he, every time he delivers and thinking of hiring day players, like if you can find somebody who, you know, maybe they have the improv background or they can bring nuance and life to even a character with just three lines casting in that way i think is also super smart in a way to like take an improv 
like who's the person on stage if you're watching a you know groundling show who you're just like right. everything they do is funny i don't know why <laughs> but it's funny yeah like think about a uh, uh, jennifer coolidge she's been playing the same character oh. for the last 30 years like but on white lotus right now it, like if she looks at the camera, I laugh. I literally, like, if she just yes. makes a face, I'm going to laugh. And, and she's, she's been doing that for the longest time, but she's so, so good at it. So, yeah, it's like, okay. I think it's like you just kind of bring people in to sort of play a thing that you know that they do well in, in improv. Something, something you guys have danced around and that Charles said earlier that re- the metaphor reminded me of when he was talking about Tina Fey's writer's rooms is that good comedy is like, uh, it's like there's a string section and a bass section and a woodwind. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's so hard to do it well. And it's so great when it's done well. And that way that it, that it flows. And like, when you get the under the unsung hero so often is people who play the straight man or straight woman or straight person in the, in the dynamic who gets like no credit for being funny. Like yeah. everyone's like the funny person is Will Ferrell on SNL. SNL's breakouts usually, but it's like what Harold Ramis and Dan Aykroyd do in Ghostbusters is they hold down the fort and like they allow for the silliness to play. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so valuable. Like it's so. I, I just think that's part of the lost art is because I think part of what we want with comedy now is we want like wacky, wacky, wacky. Right. Like, you know, and it's like airplane isn't like that, even though it's wall to wall jokes. Like there's so much structure in place. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So, yeah, we're talking about improv and I guess it mostly in comedy, but there's certainly improv that's not comedy, like Raging Bull and a, and a lot of uh, great filmmakers and performers who manage to get very real stuff that happens that's not scripted. Yeah. That I think is worth considering, too. Not just the comedic side. I think one other takeaway as filmmakers that we can take from the improv world is that in order to get good, you have to fail a ton. And I think if you are in the improv world, you crash and burn and do so many bad shows that it get it's less scary to fail. And that was important to me back in the day where I was like, oh, okay, like I just bombed up here and it I didn't die. So great. Certainly help with pitch meetings. Totally, hmm. totally. All right, so that is everything you ever needed to know yeah. about improvising in a movie. Uh, the next topic, uh, <laughs> Nerf, not just a toy anymore. Todd, you want to you wanna launch better than that? <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, you can, yeah. So Nerf is short for Neural Radiance Fields, which is, um, I just love to say it because it sounds like I'm smart. Um, but you know, I don't, I don't really know what it is yet. It's, it's one of these things that's, I've been seeing like little clips on YouTube for a long time. And every time I see one, I'm like, what is going on? Like, I think it kind of started with NVIDIA posted this thing where they showed like 
four images of this woman holding a camera. And then the camera, they're like, here's our input imagery. And then the camera just swoops around the entire room and they've recreated all of the geometry of the entire room just from these four photos. And God damn, it's, that's fucking it's really, crazy. I'm really, sorry. Re- no, it's <laughs> honestly, I haven't seen anything that I think can change the world, the VFX and filmmaking quite like this. You know, I, for a long time on this podcast, I've been kind of the anti-AI guy, uh, uh, like sort of unintentionally. This to me is like <laughs> the coolest thing in the world. And this is what I want AI to be used for. Um, so it's basically, it uses a lot of the same stuff, like the the same thing that like mid-journey and stable diffusion and all those other weird like AI generating, Im- image generating sort of things. It's using a lot of the same sort of engine type stuff, but what it it, it does so much that you couldn't do before. So there's sort of a discussion of the difference between like scanning things with photos, which I've talked about some on the podcast, but it used to be like really amazing to me that you could take, you know, a hundred photos of a thing and then it would recreate it in 3D geometry, fully textured, all that sort of stuff. It's taken, you know, all sort of uh, CG stuff by storm. But this is a whole, this is like a five steps further because um, with photo scanning, you cannot do it with um, any sort of reflective objects. So you can't scan a reflective object because when it's trying to rebuild the geometry, it doesn't know what it's looking at. This thing, it retains the lighting. It retains reflections. It retains the damn like fog in the air. So you take a couple pictures of a room. I mean, ideally you, you take more than nerf. a couple, but like the more, the okay. more. So it's just like taking the thing where you would take, like you'd circle a statue you saw yeah. in the park with a hundred pictures, as many as you could take it home, plug it into whatever your, your program is it's recreated. And then you can manipulate it as a VFX tool. This is with a space. Right. And, and it's, it's so strange because it's not, it's not even really technically geometry. It's not really polygons. It's like mm. point, cl- it's neural radiance fields. It's neural it's, radiance it's fields. It's like, what does that mean? <laughs> yeah, dude. Nerf. It, I just said it. It's neural yeah. radiance fields. Um, just use your context. <laughs> I, mean, I totally know what it is and I can totally speak about it with authority. <laughs> um, no, it's, it, I think it's like, it's so, uh, like, so, okay. When you do photo scanning, it's essentially taking a point cloud of each little discernible point of texture, right? And it's creating a point, and then it says, hey, this point looks like this, and it's in relation to these other points, we can recreate the geometry, right? Neural radiance field is taking that a step further by basically being like, this is a moment of light. This is a photon of light that, that is sitting here in this particular way. And when you move it, you know, it's, it's rebuilding it. But the thing is, is with the, the, the neural side of it, it can rebuild what it doesn't know. So what you don't feed it, it can then take it and make it where it wasn't there before. So like you can do, and like there's, there's stuff that I've seen where like people are taking literal Google images with, with tourists in front of it and cars driving through and all that sort of stuff. The neural engine can remove all those things, normalize it, to one specific image and then re- rebuild everything that you in a way that you could fly around it. So like I've seen crazy stuff where people are flying drones over mountaintops and then, hey, now you can move your camera around the entire mountain, you know, and you can do whatever you want. And then again, 
the lighting is accurate. The like, cause with photo scanning, you have to only do it with cloud coverage because whatever stuff is baked into the, the lighting on a photo scan, it's going to be baked into your model. So like if you take a picture on a sunny day of a car, a, a busted up car, but then you want to use it in a render that's like supposed to be cloudy or whatever, it doesn't work. You, you see like clear. So oh, man. with neural so radiance this field, thing you, can, can change its you weather can change its, or its yeah, lighting. It, you can bring or style. Like, so I could be like, hey, take this and make it look like matrix color correction and it'll do it. Hmm. So that reminds me of, even though I know, I know you hate Midjourney, <laughs> but Midjourney is fascinating right now because it's taken some steps yeah. forward and now it's like combining, like it'll take a style and a history and like a place. And if you give it enough prompts, it gets really so, crazy. Like I've seen people posting these pictures that are like a whole long series of prompts where it's like, it's a certain lens, it's a certain depth of field, it's a certain era, it's a certain town, it's in a certain style. And you get these pictures where you're like, that, if it wasn't for the fact that this thing can't figure out how to do a human's hands, which is kind of hilarious, <laughs> or text. it looks like pictures or text. It's pictures from the past, like a hundred percent. Like some of them are just yeah. So, so to to put it in a like a simpler way, like so, imagine if you could then fly a camera around your mid journey scene, and it could and and it and it could be a photo reel, you know, Arc de Triomphe or whatever. I have a yeah. question. So, so if it only has the information, say we're looking at a picture of David, the statue, if it only had the front part, would it know to like give David a butt? If, if you fed it that image <laughs> and you said you took and it knew that it was at that, it, it was at the, the statue of David, it would then know to mm. look for other images like the statue of David mm. and then give it his butt. Yes. So it's, okay. it's, it's insane. Asking for a friend. Just <laughs> she just <laughs> David it's got like the, how there's got these weird errors that I love yeah. where it'll be like someone will feed the prompt to mid journey that's like, uh, what if Guillermo del Toro made Star Wars? And you'll see like all these images generated out of that. Cool. And it's like his style. But there will be pictures where there's like three Darth Vaders and they're all holding what look like cameras, and then there's a guy who looks like Guillermo right. del Toro. Like it's like a little confused about what <laughs> what to do with the information you give it, but it's still taking the information and like creating stuff. And when it gets it right, the idea that you could turn that into an interactive 3D environment and put a camera in it, like that is, I was saying the other day, like I think we're in the five-year range from like AI prompt movies. Now I think we're in like the two to and three And that's, that's the thing is like, because that's so nuts. With, with all of these things that pop out, like, so my first, inkling of nerf was maybe four or five months ago now there are you can download it as an app there's a, a website uh called luma ai they're partnering with polycam who does all the photo scanning stuff so who knows what's going to happen like they're they're merging all these things together and i mean like like we are weeks away from i walk outside and i go hey the light is nice right now this bench looks neat i can then take my phone out take seven, eight, nine, 10, 20 photos, and then go home and make a robot walk around in the scene with the bench and it's going to look photo real. And wow. um, I mean, it's just like, I, I remember freaking the hell out just about photo scanning. Now I can, st I, you can do it at night. You can do a, a nerf at night. So photo scans, you can't do at night. So like if you, if you walk down a creepy, cool looking alley 
and you want to have a scene take place there, we're a year away from having that be possible with stuff that you took with your phone. So pretty crazy times. And uh, like, I mean, the, 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 the uses for it are like, I, it kind of breaks my, my brain trying to think of all the different ways that you could use it. Corridor put out a video all about it where like Ren kind of does his little deep dive on, on everything and, you know, shows some kind of interesting uses for it. But it's, it's like a, another one of those things where like we're at the beginning stages of it. And um, so right now it's kind of smushy, like things are a little smushy. Things are a little weird. You have like little floaty things that don't look quite right. But like really we're at a place where we're at the phase of it where like all the smart people are making the things and they don't really know how to talk about it in a way that the the non-smart people can get excited about it yet. And so like, you know, you go on and you watch like the the breakdowns and the white papers and they're talking about, you know, what the way they're training the neural engine and the, the different um, inputs and all these sort of data type things. But like, once they, you know, like I said, it's an app now. So like once we, I'm, once we get there. I'm not one of the smart people and I'm scared and, <laughs> and, and like aware, like, and I'm not reading what I can't read yeah, the white yeah. pages. Like, and right. I, and I, even, I know that like, when I think about this and mid journey and deep fake and just the computing power available, most people out there don't realize what's going to descend upon us. Like after scanning a lot of like, after looking at a lot of mid journey stuff and things like that, I go and I look at other stuff on the internet and I'm like, pretty soon it'll just be indistinguishable. Like, what am I scrolling? That's fake and real. Like what's, what, what's the difference? It's not going to be different. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, we're, we're, it's, it's going to be weird. (laughs) I do have to, I, I am curious how Lyle Lyle Crocodile would be different with this technology. <laughs> <laughs> nice call. Oh, Maybe man. we get the Nerf cut. <laughs> the Nerf the cut, Nerf yeah. Cut. <laughs> I remember when color grading, when Apple Color first launched, like four people I knew start color grading businesses because this technology that was previously like hard became easy. And like four of those businesses are still in business. Like, do you think that if you were like a 19 year old person wanting to get into film, is this the thing you should spend your next four months mastering? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, that's a, that's like, there's certain levels to that question because I think it's all moving so fast that I like people are always going to need color grading, but like I, who, who like, you know, if, if I launched a whole like photo scanning business, you know, five months ago and then instantly it gets replaced with nerf stuff, you know, like I, it's just everything is moving so fast. It's kind of hard to know, like, because I've I've kind of thought about doing things like, should I sell some of my scans? Should I start doing this sort of stuff? Should I start making materials? And then all of a sudden, Quixel comes out, and you can download any material you want, and it looks photoreal and it's free. You know, so things move really quick. And uh, yeah, but I, to me, I think it's just like a great time to sort of learn all of it and be good at. Like if, if visual effects or visual things is the visual side of it rather than the writing, producing, directing side is your thing. Mm-hmm. Like I would definitely, like if you were even just someone who is getting interested in cinematography, um, I would definitely start, uh, I would seriously consider like getting into Unreal Engine, getting into some more game development, d- game development side type things because I really think that's where a lot of the industry is going to be headed. And I think like, in, like, traditional VFX uh, yeah. pipelines are going away and and people can now in their bedroom do what ILM was doing uh, you know back in the Lord of the Rings days with 
you know, 5,000 people working on it. So it's, you know, it's, things are moving really quick. So it's like, it's hard to say, but I just, I, like if, if visual stuff is your thing, start learning about it. Um, Cause like, I, you know, I, I'm freaked out about it, but I'm trying my best. <laughs> I'm a 33 year old man and, and, you know, I, I just need to stay afloat. So I'm trying to learn this stuff as fast as I can. All right. What's that? Where can we find everybody on the internet? I'm, uh, I do YouTube stuff sometimes as Trolltane. I'm on Mastodon at the barbecue.snoot.com uh, server. Charles Hain. I'm at Lost in Graceland, also on Mastodon. Still not sure how it works. And uh, I just redid my website on a procrastination whim. So it's there too. I'm Todd Blankenship. You can find me at MI Filmmaker on YouTube and uh, Instagram. And I haven't updated my website since like 2010. <laughs> <laughs> I, need to, I need to get on that. It's a MySpace. <laughs> yeah, it's a Zanga. Uh, Friendster, <laughs> come on. You guys are young. I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief of No Film School. You can find everything we talked about today and more at nofilmschool.com. Be sure to like, rate, and subscribe to the podcast and leave comment and send us your questions. We love to hear from you. Editor at nofilmschool.com. Find us on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, all the places. Thank you so much for listening.